Coming to you from KFAI Community Radio in Minneapolis, this is the Minicultural Podcast. I am your host, Jamunde Tway. Now on this podcast, you're going to hear some of KFAI's best arts and culture stories from around the state of Minnesota. On today's episode, we're going to get out of the studio to check out some places around the Twin Cities. These are the kind of places you think will always be there until all of a sudden, they're just not. Now, this is the beginning of the end of Skid Row. You can see how fast these buildings went down because there was no steel in them whatsoever, just wood and brick. To us as entertainers and black entertainers, it's the one place we can go and we're just, we don't, we don't have nothing. Yeah, That's our own Apollo, like New York has the Apollo. She is the Apollo of the Twin Cities, we're losing that. I'm standing here on Washington Avenue, just off of Nicollet. This area is known as the Gateway District, and it's the oldest part of the city. Today, when I stand here and look around, I see big buildings, tall skyscrapers. I see a giant monument behind me. And now here's a dog taking a dump <laughs> right in front of this massive building. All right. <laughs> Back in the 50s, this was a whole nother world, though. My name is John Bassich, and I took this film on Skid Row down on Washington Avenue in Minneapolis so that people could see what it was all about in the late 50s. We're going to learn more about John Bassich and Skid Row in our next story. Back in the day, my man John was known as Johnny Rex, and he was a king of the neighborhood. He owned a bar, he owned a liquor store, and he owned a hotel. I mean, just everything that could be owned, the man owned it. And right here is where those spots used to be. Skid Row was about 20 square blocks, but looking around now, you never know that Minneapolis even had a Skid Row. Producer Zan Holston is going to tell us more about that lost world and the complicated guy who was known as Johnny Rex. Here's Zan's story. Johnny Rex and a nickel eye opener. If you drink all day, every day, you'll wake up with the shakes. Doctors call that delirium tremens or DTs. To shake the shakes, your body needs booze. On Minneapolis's Skid Row in the 1950s, Johnny Rex was happy to provide it. People would be sick or something, so I'd give them all a drink for a nickel. And by the time I opened up 10 minutes later, the bar would be just filled to capacity. That's Johnny Rex, one of the best known and most complex men on Skid Row. He had a straight name, John Bassage, but in the liquor-fueled Flophouse era, he was known as Johnny Rex because he owned a liquor store by the same name. He owned a bar and a hotel, too. James Schiffer, a respectable newspaper man, has written a book about him. It's called The King of Skid Row, John Bassett in the Twilight Years of Old Minneapolis. His dad taught him you need to be compassionate towards your customers. You need to take care of them. Rex's dad was a bootlegger. And that meant you don't rob them. You don't beat them up. But it also included when they needed a drink, when they had the DTs, you give them a five-cent eye-opener in the morning. That... That's a hard sentence to hear. We've all heard it. Well, I'm providing a service, right? You know, the low-rent landlords and things like slumlords, providing a service. He was providing a service. If he didn't do it, someone else would do it. Rex's mini-empire of booze and cheap sleeps was far from the only one in the city. If you cruised Washington Avenue in the Gateway District, that's the name of the neighborhood where Rex held court, you'd see a lot of the same. All you could see there just is nothing but liquor stores and beer parlors 
And upstairs was these flop houses. A flop house is kind of a cheap hotel. The one owned by Rex was called the Victor Hotel. He built the rooms out of plywood and topped them with chicken wire. They were so small, people called them cages. But before Minneapolis got federal money to bulldoze hundreds of buildings on the northern edge of downtown in the 1960s, these flop houses were home to some 3,000 men who had given up on the straight world. Many of them embraced the bottle. When these men ventured outside their rooms, Rex photographed them and shot home movies, too. He was so interested in their lives. You know, he would find out where they were from and how they ended up on Skid Row and what their kind of... Each one of them had sort of a story. This is old Doc. He was a diehard Republican. This is Moonface. She was one of the nicest. Here's Nick and Nemo. And that's Mabel. And they'd pull each other's nose. He was the chieftain's daughter. This is a guy we called Santa Claus. Here's old Kelly the Clown. Now notice he's walking barefoot in the wintertime. Yeah. Conglomeration of people, bootleggers. That's Curly in the middle. I'll tell you a story about Muggers. Him. This is Whitey. Jack Rollers. He'd sleep any place. If you ever had any money there, you'd better, better keep quiet because in about 10 minutes it'd be gone. Ultimately, Rex learned that many of the drunks on Skid Row had left behind lives that just didn't suit them. In one case, a man abandoned his family just on the other side of town. And many of the older men had been living on Skid Row so long, they'd develop a community they weren't eager to leave. Ah, these fellas, I know you feel sorry for them. People say, yeah, they lived a miserable life, but they said, what we don't want is responsibility. He said they would say to him, John, don't feel bad for us. This is the life we wanted. We didn't want any responsibilities. I don't want a wife. I don't want children. I don't want a job. You know, I just want to have fun. At the end of the 1950s, the fun ended. The city moved forward on their plans to demolish Skid Row. $18 million in federal housing money enabled Minneapolis to demolish some 200 buildings, or 40% of its downtown. With the flops and liquor stores gone, the men left too. Now, this is the beginning of the end of Skid Row. Rex moved his business after Skid Row disappeared and sold his liquor license off shortly after that. He later became a successful real estate speculator, spending half of his time in Minneapolis and the rest off the coast in Florida. He died in 2012 at the age of 93. And the men who lived on Skid Row? No one really knows what happened to them. The city did a little to help them find new homes, but they viewed them as homeless, even though most of them had been living, sometimes for more than 10 years, in these flop houses. Schiffer says it's unfortunate the city didn't mind this distinction. This was a real community that existed there. It was not a bunch of homeless people, just a bunch of drunks that if we just got them to not live with each other, they'd be productive citizens or they'd be better in some way. So who was Johnny Rex? An opportunist preying on the weak? An altruist with a liquor license? He was kind of the personification of that conflict of... Uh, say, this city that has a tortured relationship with alcohol that makes it available at all these different places, but at the same time sort of continues to view it as a kind of a moral failing. As for Bassage, the man once known as Johnny Rex, after the wrecking ball hit Skid Row, he was a bit wistful. Skid Row was quite an experience, uh, but I never want to go through it again. For KFAI, I'm Zan Holston. Now we're going to head across the Mississippi River to St. Paul to pay tribute to a Twin Cities icon. We go down University and make our way to Arnella's. There'll never be another place like it. Now, Arnella's going to be somewhere around here on the left. Oh, there it is. Damn. Why the hell I missed that big-ass sign? Arnella's. 
they must have just put that up there before they closed. While Johnny Rex was doing his thing on Skid Row, a woman named Arnella Allen arrived in Minnesota from Mississippi. This was in 1957. Allen was part of the Great Migration. This was when a lot of black folks left the rural South. They were trying to get away from poverty, from Jim Crow, all the discrimination that took place down South. A lot of them came up North, and some folks planted their roots right here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Arnella Allen was one of those people. She hustled hard, made a new life for herself in the Twin Cities. In 1992, Arnella Allen opened up her own club on University Avenue in St. Paul. Is it the way you love me, baby? For 25 years, this spot was a home away from home for generations of black Minnesotans. Arnella's closed in April 2017. Producer Nancy Rosenbaum visited the club in his final days. Here's her story. Arnella's Our Own Apollo. Give it up for the birthday people in the house. Arnella's is the kind of club where a singer like Kendra Glenn would sing to you on your birthday. Glenn has been performing at the St. Paul Club for the last 17 years. She says longtime owner Arnella Allen gave her a chance when hardly anyone else would. I never thought about singing, but, you know, doing it professional, but just being on her stage, and it's like home. In just a few days, that home will shudder. Arnella's is the last remaining Black-owned live music club in Minnesota. Owner Arnella Allen has been sick with cancer, and she plans to sell the building. 30 years in the business. We love you. We adore you. Give it up, y'all. Miss Arnella, the queen. Together with Kendra Glenn, singer Demonica Fly has been organizing the final week of performances, including her own. Last night was so emotional. Oh, I know. It's, it's hard. I can't believe, you know. So it's like, um, to, to us as entertainers yeah. and black entertainers, it's the it's, one place we, it's can, the go. One place we yeah. can go. And we're just... We don't, we don't have nothing. Yeah. For Fly, she could always just be herself at Arnella's. A place where we can sing the music that, that we, we love to do on. and that yeah. we grew up on. I mean, Absolutely. from Betty Wright to yeah. Millie Jackson yeah. to Johnny Taylor to it's all, all acceptable. Aretha and everything's it's acceptable. All acceptable. When you go to Arnella's, you can pull it out and people are like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's my jam. Here's Fly on stage at Arnella singing a cover of Dennis Edwards' 1984 classic, Don't Look Any Further. I don't really want to see Arnella's clothes, not because it's a bar, but Ar- Arnella's is an institution. Tony Rohn has been a sound engineer at Arnella's for over 16 years. He credits Alan for keeping the club going for so long. I love Miss Arnella, and it's, uh, it's kind of like working for your mom. You, you do it because you enjoy doing it. it. 
Allen was born in Mississippi. She moved to Minnesota in the 1950s when she was 17. She started working as a cocktail waitress and then as a barmaid. But that wasn't enough. She wanted her own place. In 1992, she bought the squat one-story building on University Avenue in St. Paul. And she named it after herself, Arnella's. Again, DeMonica Fly. One thing about Arnella, she's a very strong woman. Yeah, strong I mean, strong-willed very, woman, yeah. um, very determined. She's yeah. not, she's never been a quitter. She's a yeah. fighter. Yeah. You yeah. know, and like I told her, I said, Mom, because we all call her Mom, mm-hmm. you know, this is not the end. You yeah. were a black woman who had a liquor license in the history. state of she's, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have done so much for the community. Yeah. Beyond live music. Arnella's is where people could play a hand of the card game Bidwist every single Tuesday. I want to send a shout out to all the Bidwist players in the house. So this is the last Tuesday, the Bidwist finale here at Arnella's. Yes. My name is Geraldine Shabazz, and I've been coming over here for 15 years to play Bidwist every Tuesday. Judy Edwards from Brooklyn Park is another longtime Arnella's Bidwist player. This is it. This is the last Tuesday. I know. I'm, we're sad about it. Don't cry. Okay. I don't know. Not yet, but I might before the night is over. I want to get my spot. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we got to get that spot. A one, two, come on. As Arnella's era comes to an end, both Tony Roan and Demonica Fly wonder where future generations will go to get their first shot on stage. There are dozens, and I mean dozens, of musicians that literally learn how to play their instrument at Arnella's. I yeah. think that's the hardest thing yeah. for us is that yeah. all of us have started our musical careers from there. That's the, the Apollo. The tw- we have yes. that's our own Apollo. Apollo. Like New yeah. York has the yeah. Apollo. She is the, the Apollo, Apollo of the Twin Cities. Yes. We're losing that, yeah. and we're losing yeah. just the community for us to come fellowship. For KFAI, I'm Nancy Rosenbaum. Miss Arnella died on December 21st, 2017. She was 79 years old. Rest in peace, Miss Arnella. For our last stop on this time travel tour, we're gonna visit a place that is still here. I see what we're about to be eating right now. <laughs> Those pancakes look delicious. Al's breakfast. It's pretty much stayed the same for over 60 years. That's six decades. The pancakes are bomb. Made from scratch. God damn. Yeah. It's worth it. That was the best pancake I've ever had. I'm not just saying that because I'm on mic. 
Owls has become my new favorite place for breakfast. You can count on people who work here to keep it real. Real, real for real. Hey, man. Working for you? Will you marry me? <laughs> no, but Doug might. <laughs> my wife will scratch your eyes out. It's all right. She can share. <laughs> <laughs> he just wants breakfast in bed. <laughs> Cafe Eye producer Todd Melby loves this place. Here's the story behind the counter at Al's Breakfast. I need eggs, please! I am Andrew Wilkins, and we are at Al's Breakfast this morning in Dinkytown. Good morning. My name's Doug Brenna, and I cook here. It'll be 40 years this September. It's fun. It's loose. I never thought I'd be in, a, in the restaurant industry because mostly they seem like horrible jobs and bad management. And I thought, well, it doesn't have to be like that here. It can be more fluid and fun. One egg Jose dark and bacon, a one egg Jose butter and bacon, and poached two on CBH butter. Watch your mouth today, MR. No way. <laughs> Well, we have 14 stools, and people stand behind in line. On weekends, we usually have people standing outside the door and around the building, especially in the summer when we have to get a lot of tourists. But people just patiently wait. Bacon and butter. My name's Dan. I, I, I feel like I don't have to, I, I don't want to swear, but kiss people's ass on the counter. Like, a lot of other restaurants, you have to like, kind of bow and scrape for what you're doing. And people like us here. So I was going to have you read these signs. What does that sign say? It says, bite me, self-righteous, hypocritical, capitalist, money-grubbing dweeb. <laughs> I found it pinned to our back door 20-some years ago, and I loved it. I've got a Al Bergstrom bought it uh, in 1950 and opened on May 15th, 1950, and operated it as a full-service restaurant until he determined that he wasn't making any dinner, any uh, money at dinner time, and then noticed that during lunch most people were still ordering from his breakfast menu, so he cut it down to just a breakfast menu, and that's when he said he started making money. And which items on the menu have always been there and are the, like the most... a lot of stuff that's always been there. The blueberries have always been there, the buttermilk batter. For, for years I was ordering the, the, uh, the Israeli. The Israeli, yeah. We used to say that you couldn't get the West Bank and the Israeli on the same plate. I need a saute of broccoli and spinach and onion and feta. And tomato? And tomato, too. Well, you should get someone to ask him uh, if he's Al. Yeah. They wondered if you were Al. Al's dead. I just looked that way. Sharp blacks. So will Al's be here forever? I have no, I don't even know what forever means. It's going to be here until I retire, and that's pretty much what I'm looking at. <laughs> it's going to be here for a while. Here you go, guys. Some syrup for you. Need anything else? <laughs> cool. Thank you. You're welcome.
So, like Usher, I have a confession to make. Until today, I had never actually eaten at Owl's breakfast. And neither had producer Nancy Rosenbaum. So now that you've eaten here, why do you think this place has lasted so long? It's obvious. It feels like home. Who wouldn't want to come home and eat delicious meals? And it feels like, uh, like it's almost just for you. It's like a little hideaway that no one knows about. And this is just your special place. Hey man, I really enjoyed myself. I will. Oh really, I did. All right, fellas. Ugh. Work hard. Keep that voice greased up. Man, definitely be coming here to grease it up. <laughs> And that's it for this episode. The Minute Culture Podcast is produced by you-know-who, my man, Zan Holston, Sir Todd Melby, and Lady Nancy Rosenbaum. Our music is by Javier Santiago. Support for the Minute Culture Podcast is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Culture Heritage Fund. If you're digging a podcast, then you know what to do. Go on ahead and subscribe. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher. We do need subscribers. It also helps us if you write a review so other people can discover the podcast. I'm your host, Jamande Tway, signing out. I hope you enjoyed this tour down Twin Cities memory lane. Peace.